You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment. Uh, it's deepening your practice. It's April 22nd, 2021. It's 7.35 p.m. Uh, Pacific Daylight Time. And tonight I thought we would begin a uh, Vipassana cycle and that uh, I would talk about it in terms of uh, how to organize practice. Um, I was talking to my teacher, Dan Brown, uh, and he uh, commented that what we really need to do in the beginning is work through any difficulties that we might have that would pre prevent us from taking on the practice so that we could then take on the practice and uh, pursue it in a deep way toward uh, the ultimate goal of practice, which is enlightenment. But that often when we come to practice, we come because we want to relieve our suffering experience and that <coughs> A lot of times the conditioning experiences that we had in our uh, upbringing and our, our lives uh, preceding our entry into the path and entry into practice can interfere with our capacity to go deeply into um, the, the meditation practice. And so it is useful to attend to that part first, um, resolve those. Uh, issues so that we then have the support that we need in order to pursue a deeper practice. So uh, at Metagroup, one of the things that we do is frame that in an understanding around attachment theory and uh, investigate how our uh, early conditioning uh, expresses itself in attachment outcomes. Look at how, uh, as a result of that, we organize the experience of our lives and then work to uh, develop the capacity to uh, uh, either adjust or create or expand a, a, a social network that will then uh, be available to us to support us as we uh, dive into the practice. Meditation um, in the West or particularly in the US is, uh, is driven by the, the, the a mindfulness movement, which is a is a kind of secularized expression of meditation, which is meant to uh, as a stress reduction uh, process or something to boost contentment or happiness, uh, and it, it's quite removed from the the pursuit of uh, enlightenment. And actually, the way that it expressed often would not lead to the insights that uh, we talk about when we talk about enlightenment. Um, and it's meant as a kind of lifestyle enhancer. Um, many people go into different uh, strategies that we have in the West to attend to the, the difficulties in their lives that lead to a sense of suffering. And uh, depending on the level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with those approaches, uh, find their way into <coughs> meditation communities. So you come in through a mindfulness practice 
you get some relief around developing the capacity to concentrate, but not enough to relieve that underlying core um, uh, issues around uh, the causes of that suffering. And then you uh, move um, into uh, deeper practice communities. But often the traditional way of uh, describing the practice of uh, dharma or uh, this pursuit, this path toward liberation um, does not uh, sufficiently address these um, difficulties. Uh, and you're prevented actually from uh, going deeper because of that. Some repeating myself or uh, circling around this to try and describe it uh, in a way that makes sense. But with uh, a view using attachment conditioning, we can come into uh, an understanding of how the effects of our early conditioning created these patterns of experience, which we then uh, use as uh, a way of creating conceptual reality. So you have the object that can be sensed, it meets the capacity to sense, it's uh, compared or it's evaluated for urgency. If it needs urgent attention, it's addressed immediately. Most things uh, don't really ever get um, into uh, conscious awareness. And then if uh, there's a pleasant experience and there's time for it, we have that pleasant experience. Um, after it's evaluated for processing speed, it's compared to the perceptual database to see if we can recognize what the pattern of undifferentiated sensing is uh, in terms of uh, something that we would make into a solid experience of uh, conceptual reality. So ultimate reality is then processed and converted into conceptual reality, which is then projected outward and we have the appearance of the world around us. The process of that is really based on preferences. The mind carries our attention uh, through the, the field of sensing and selects um, high value targets to us. So we all carry with us these, these lists of high value targets or things that interest us and things that we don't like and so we avoid and so we really filter the uh, whole selection of these little pieces, these elements that we then turn into this tableau of conceptual reality. <clears throat> and if you don't monitor that, you don't see clearly what it is that we're doing in that case. You may not know that your version of reality has been selected based on that conditioning experience and, and depending on um, the level of distortion that's built into that process may uh, resemble what's actually there or may be quite different than that. We have a, a process of negotiating with each other a kind of shared reality of what's happening, but each of us has this uh, process that's ours and each of our lists of high value targets are our own. And, uh, and we're, we're never really representing uh, completely what's there, just this selected version based on our conditioning. 
one of the um, pursuits of meditation, of course, is to be able to see this clearly. And the Buddha described this in, in different ways, but usually they're culturally dependent. Um, and also it's an old teaching. Um, when we were in Myanmar, uh, to my delight uh, in the countryside, they were still using ox carts that were similar to the uh, descriptions in the, in the traditional texts. <coughs> but I've never seen an ox cart in, um, uh, in the US that was even close. And so there's a kind of transliteration that happens between the traditional texts and uh, uh, understanding that's culturally dependent on what's happening now, where we are. And it's easy in that transliteration to, to uh, misinterpret or misunderstand what's happening. Um, and uh, the monastic texts tend to be very emphatic and very linear and very stark in their sampling. And often that can be challenging in terms of how to understand what, what it is that they're teaching. And so you have uh, teachers that you come to, to express it to you in, in the way that they language it. And I think that we're largely drawn to teachers who language it in a way that we can understand it without a lot of transliteration. And so these multiple voices are important so that each person based on their conditioning can be drawn to a particular teacher who expresses the teaching in a way that uh, is uh, easily relatable and understandable. Oftentimes, the subtlety of what we're trying to describe and uh, to get you to look at in your meditation practice is hard to distinguish without that, um, that sort of uh, immediacy of, of the particular kind of description that each uh, teacher is offering. When I say that conceptual reality is created inside of us and projected out based on these small selections uh, of data, that it's compared to the database. Um, do you know immediately what I'm talking about? Does it create a sense of curiosity to explore and look for that? Um, I think in the beginning, we often, because of the conditioning of being Westerners, um, rely on what we see as if that's an accurate representation. What you see is what you get. And this really comes from Western thought or Western philosophy around the seeing process as far back as Aristotle, uh, thinking that uh, in visual experience, we look at what's out there and then create this working model internally of what is out there. Later with, uh, um, <clears throat> there were some adjustments to this basic tenet, but. Uh, mostly around <coughs> strong emotion being capable of distorting that, but still uh, the gathering of what's out there and a fairly complete representation of what's out there, 
creating this inner model of that. So in that kind of pedagogy, we rely on what we see, we rely on conceptual reality as an accurate representation. And in uh, Buddhist thought, it's really quite different than that. Depending on our conditioning, depending on the quality of mind, uh, changes, changes or distorts the, the representation that we make and then we push it out so what, what we see and experience out there is really a reflection of the internal experience. So the Buddha talked about this in terms of hindrances, for instance, if the mind is equanimous, the representation that's projected outward uh, has a tendency to be more accurate. But if the mind is uh, filled with craving or lust, it's as if, the image were dyed a bright color. He used the metaphor of a mirror, a bowl with a dark glaze on it filled with water. So 2,600 years ago, that was, the, that was a mirror. That we don't experience anything directly. We experience it as a reflection of the mind. And so the surface of the mirror is the mind that's reflecting what's out there. The water was still and clear. The image that's reflected off that is an accurate representation, but if it were, if the mind were filled with craving, then it's as if it were dyed a bright color. So that there's that infusing in the imagery of that, a bright color. <coughs> I was talking about this earlier today, but when, when I was a kid, we would go skiing and we would wear these, uh, sort of bright yellow colored glasses that were meant to increase the contrast on the snow so that we could see the moguls easier. Uh, and you put them on and you'd notice right away that it was distorting the color balance uh, uh, and contrast of the image outside. But after wearing them for a while, the mind would normalize it. And it would seem as if that were the world, the way that it looked with those shifts and those differences. Um, and you would just operate as if that were the way that the world was. But then uh, at the end of the day, when you took glasses off, you'd see again uh, with that contrast of glasses on, glasses off, how distorted that view was. And then the mind would gradually settle into a, uh, what appears to be a more accurate representation. The Buddha said, if the mind were filled with anger, it's as if the water were boiling, how distorting anger can be if the mind were uh, restless and agitated as if as, as a breeze were blowing across the surface of the water. If the mind was filled with sloth and torpor, it's as if algae had overgrown the surface of the water. If the mind was filled with skeptical doubt, it's as if the water were muddy. So you can see uh, by looking at the quality of the mind that it distorts the perception of conceptual reality. But then I thought, why not add these perceptions of uh, a mind in a, in a particular attachment activation? So the mind is secure, it creates a particular perception. If the mind is dismissing, it creates a particular perception. If the mind is preoccupied, it creates a particular perception. If the mind is disorganized, it creates a particular perception. 
and that you can begin to tie those uh, internal states uh, which you know through uh, 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 really it's almost a collapse of capacity, an absence of some skill that might have been there earlier, what the pattern of that is, uh, the felt sense of it, and then compare it to this view of conceptual reality. And then that process of exploration can then be used to pursue a deeper meditation practice. <clears throat> but because it's so compelling to use those uh, investigations because of the immediate impact that it has on um, the ordinary householder life, it also is very encouraging as practice. People with secure attachment tend to form relationships and social groups that are very supportive of exploration, uh, encouraging of exploration, encouraging of meaning making. And people with insecure attachment or <coughs> disorganized attachment have a much harder time putting uh, a social network that's supportive around themselves, they, they're freer to explore. We, in the attachment world, of course, we're talking about these three mechanisms. Uh, uh, the attachment mechanism, is mechanism itself, the exploration mechanism, and then also the collaborative uh, mechanism. Attachment is only activated when there's the perception of threat, some kind of abandonment threat or some kind of physical danger. And when it activates, it deactivates the exploration mechanism uh, and propels you to seek protection from the people around you that you feel safe with and you understand will help you and protect you. <clears throat> In uh, secure people, there's a real uh, dexterity, a real ease of movement between attachment and seeking connection. When you make the connection and safety, the sense of safety returns, the attachment mechanism goes off and the exploration mechanism goes back on. So there's this link between attachment activation and the deactivation of exploration. And when the attachment mechanism settles, the reactivation of exploration. Exploration is uh, the pursuit or the making of meaning in, in the experiences of being alive. Without a rich <clears throat> sense of meaning, the, the ordinary vicissitudes of life become very challenging to keep going with. It can lead to a sense of despair that, uh, that life is too difficult, life is too hard to keep going. Whereas if your life is filled with meeting, those same vicissitudes that for some people seem overwhelming seem inconsequential. We grow old, uh, we get sick, we die. And in that process of aging, of course, the difficulties of the human body are, are uh, amplified uh, with the, the loss of uh, vitality that happens through the ordinary aging process. But people who are engaged and find meaning uh, find uh, those uh, 
difficulties inconsequential uh, as long as they don't prevent the pursuit of meaningfulness. Whereas people who uh, don't find meaning, uh, they can become overwhelming. When we look at these patterns of um, attachment, uh, exploration and collaboration, uh, people who are able to connect and engage people and build uh, dynamic relationships have the support and encouragement that they need to continue exploring and finding meaning so that that, that aging process, that the, just the vicissitudes of life uh, don't interfere much. And people who have a harder time doing that as they age, the <laughs> <coughs> collected <coughs> the collective disappointment of over and over again not being able to make relationships work, not being able to be resilient enough to really uh, pursue meaningful activity accumulates. And so the willingness to keep trying becomes uh, diminished. Each time you try and fail, it activates the disappointment. And if the disappointment becomes too great, uh, you don't try, you don't engage again to avoid the experience of disappointment. Even though you're successfully uh, avoiding the experience of disappointment, you're not pursuing activities that have meaning. And so, the day-to-day -day life becomes less and less meaningful, less and less rich. And so that despair of being alive takes over. In the US, we have a, it appears periodically in newspapers as an epidemic of loneliness in older people who are socially disconnected. So secure people have this uh, agency in the attachment mechanism and regulating it, the exploration mechanism, and they have the capacity and skills to collaborate with other people in making these uh, supportive relationships work. Uh, you agree to take care of somebody in a way that they want to be taken care of, and they agree to take care of you in a way that you want to be taken care of and you collaborate with each other on each other's care. So you explain to people how it is that uh, uh, you can be taken care of in a way that provides meaning for you and, and you're open and receptive to hearing how other people uh, describe how they like to be taken care of in a way that's meaningful to them. And you figure out how to use your time, energy and resources in order to do that. At the same time, supporting each other's exploration. <laughs> Where we find meaning, of course, is in this process of exploring, but then discovering things and coming back to these people in our social network and sharing what we found out, and then being engaged and interested in what we're doing and uh, in the understanding that comes from our intimate expressions of that. 
uh, it may seem, uh, as I'm describing this, something that would be very useful to have for your meditation practice. People that would support and encourage you to keep practicing and to go deep. And then when you come out of that, interested in your expressions of what you found out so that there's this constant energy of, of practice that develops. That's why I think it's so important to be able to have this social support for your practice. But insecure attachment uh, uh, systems don't work in that way. And so you may find that if you have conditioning that led to insecure attachment, that you don't have the capacity to do that dance between attachment, exploration, and collaboration. And that in order to have that social network around you that really will support your practice so that you're free to go deep, even if it becomes challenging, isn't available to you. And so fixing that first may be required in order for you to have the support that you need to practice deeply. <clears throat> if you could do it in a way that as you're uh, repairing the attachment injuries uh, and uh, developing the social network that you were practicing uh, techniques that you would then use to pursue the deeper practice so that when you were able to put into place the network, the social network that you needed, you would already have the skill then to dive deeply into practice, which is why I like this um, meditation approach to addressing attachment disturbances. Dismissing people <clears throat> deactivate the attachment mechanism so that their exploration mechanism is online. They don't typically collaborate with people. So there's deficits in both the attachment mechanism and in the capacity to collaborate. They engage in what we think of as in a pseudo exploration. Uh, and there's a division here between a primary exploration where uh, the activity of the exploration in, in itself is the thing that provides meaning and a secondary <coughs> exploration that is about uh, attaining uh, um, resources that you can then use to transact relationships rather than collaborate uh, so that you can get your needs uh, through transaction rather than through collaboration. So that means as long as you have resources, you can transact the things that you need but when it comes to practices like meditation and pursuing things uh, that have meaning that require that you really open up and see uh, uh, conditions the way that they are, the skewing of view that comes from the dismissing strategy also obscures what you want to find out in the meditation practice. Uh, preoccupied people tend to do the opposite. They tend to activate the uh, attachment mechanism. And they tend to deactivate the exploration uh, mechanism. And uh, they don't tend to collaborate either. And so with the attachment mechanism activated, the exploration mechanism is deactivated. And so they don't explore well and they need to be in proximity to somebody that makes them feel safe or they feel unsafe because of the constant 
uh, activation of the attachment mechanism. Because they aren't in this place of balance, it's very difficult for them to collaborate. They, they uh, trade uh, proximity for uh, whatever it is that the other person needs to provide for them proximity. So it's also in, in that sense, transactional. <clears throat> but these views of attachment activation uh, or deactivation uh, are things that you can learn to see in the same way that you could learn to see an equanimous mind or a lustful mind or an angry mind or a, or a, a agitated mind or a slothful mind or a doubting mind. And then as they arise, you then can bring uh, solutions to that that cause those uh, mind states to dissipate in the same way that you undo uh, craving aversion and consciousness. And in doing that, open up the possibility of developing these uh, social networks that then will support you, moving from insecure attachment toward uh, secure functioning. Well, there's also disorganized attachment. I haven't talked about that so much. Um, when we say disorganized, we don't mean that you, you, you have a cluttered apartment, we mean that your attachment responses don't uh, are unpredictable, disorganized. Uh, people who use a dismissing attachment strategy when they're activated respond in, in typical dismissing ways. A preoccupied person who's organized uh, responds in a typically preoccupied way, a secure person in a secure way. But a disorganized person could respond with any of those uh, responses and, and it's unpredictable, it's hard to figure out uh, how they're going to respond. And so you as a person interacting with them uh, uh, tend to react to that as unreliable. We like to, when we're collaborating with somebody, understand how they understand things, what expressions mean to them so that we can then <clears throat> communicate to them in a way that's predictable. And... <clears throat> If we can't predict how they're going to respond, we can't figure out how to language something. Uh, and so uh, that, that can easily activate our attachment mechanism, make us fearful in the communication to them. So then how do we understand you? Uh, if you look at the Eightfold Path, uh, right view is the, the first of it. And it means that you see things clearly uh, mainly that there is no experience of self that is permanent and located anywhere, that everything is impermanent and that uh, we live uh, in a body that will age, grow sick and die, and there's nothing that we can do about that. So that becomes the basis of our engagement. Um, that we have consciousness and that we can identify with that. We have awareness which knows consciousness and that we can view this experience of consciousness as, as the, the nature of all things. 
<coughs> this is often a paradigm shift for uh, people, particularly in the West, who, who are really conditioned in a different way uh, to view the, the nature of the world. And so um, it can be frightening um, when we get into it. And that's, again, where we need this support. We sometimes uh, uh, obscure our, really, our real feelings from ourselves and to touch into meditation opens this up and reveals uh, in a more stark way what's actually happening there. And if you don't have enough support and enough encouragement to do this, and you don't uh, have the ability to form a relationship or relationships with people who are a little bit further along on the path and have a deeper understanding of this, then often what happens is uh, that the stress of that experience causes you to stop meditating. And so you may notice um, in yourself or uh, in the meditative communities that people come in, they're quite gung-ho, they sit a lot, and then they get into uh, a little bit of difficulty or a lot of difficulty. And then they, the only way that they know to uh, regulate that experience is to withdraw from the practice for a while. That initially relieves the distress, but then the suffering that originally drove, uh, drew them to uh, the practice arises again and they come back. So it's this intermittent uh, practicing, stopping, practicing, stopping. And so coming into a community, forming uh, relationships with fellow practitioners and uh, creating a stable sense of support really helps even out that uh, tendency to simply withdraw from practice when it uh, becomes too painful. I like to teach a metta vipassana approach where you, you train first in the heart practices and develop this refuge of uh, uh, kindness, this refuge of compassion, this refuge of joyfulness, of equanimity, so that if you go into the vipassana side and it, it gets too difficult for whatever uh, reason, for whatever you discover there, instead of you uh, stopping meditating, you withdraw that into the metta practice. So the practice continues and you come back into balance and a sense of safety. <clears throat> Again, we can tie this to attachment. If you go into the Vipassana side and something activates a sense of fearfulness, uh, then uh, the exploration mechanism deactivates and the attachment mechanism turns on and your capacity to continue to explore the meditation is diminished by that, and you're being propelled to seek comfort and support. But if you don't have that there, it takes too long for the attachment mechanism to settle before the exploration mechanism will turn back on. And you can go back into exploring. So that connection and that capacity for soothing is uh, really important. One of the things that I noticed on retreat, for instance, when we did uh, purely Vipassana retreats, that the first two or three days of the retreats were very activating for people. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of distress uh, that was expressed. But doing a few days of um, 
heart practices before going into the Vipassana side. The distressful experiences uh, rarely arise on retreat. So people are, are freer to go in uh, deeper as a result of that. But I think it is linked to this uh, touching into stuff that's frightening or difficult, which activates the attachment mechanism and then shuts down the exploration mechanisms. And so your capacity to explore, to work through that is greatly diminished and you're seeking this connection and comfort uh, so that the attachment mechanism can go uh, shut down as a sense of safety returns. And so organizing practice in this uh, back and forth between hard practices and Vipassana is useful. Tonight, what I thought we would do is just begin a basic uh, Vipassana uh, practice. So we'll start with a few minutes of concentration practice to orient into the meditation using breath counting and then do a period of see, hear, feel, uh, the Shinzen Young technique where we're dividing sensory experience into three broad domains, visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body. It's a simple division. The felt sense of the body includes taste and smell, so the five uh, senses are covered. And then watching the activity of mind. So you have the, say, eye consciousness, which sees light and form. And then you have eye mind consciousness, which makes the light and form into something solid that we know. So this touching into ultimate experience and then the projection outward of conceptual reality. That's this initial investigation that we want to get into. Uh, just these broad, uh, easy categories. If your attention is drawn to visual experience, know it is visual experience. Uh, most of the time, the process of uh, of knowing what something is precedes conscious awareness of it. So it comes into consciousness already formed. And so this process is a, almost a reverse engineering. We know where our attention is, we know what our attention is focused on, and then we soak into the sensing experience of it. And then we just, uh, we, we don't direct the mind in any way, we just let it do its own thing. So with no attention to direct the mind toward anything, what you'll notice is that it begins to grab things, begins to focus on uh, the world around and collect uh, pieces of information that it then creates for the world out of. So also uh, pay attention to that. There's the technique aspect of this and that also what we're exploring by doing the technique. So, Go ahead and take your meditation posture. <clears throat> so any comments or questions about what we did? All right, so thank everybody for coming and for practicing. Um, this weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday, I have a meditation and addiction retreat. It's from nine to four on Saturday and from nine to one on uh, Sunday. We'll go through the 
Meditation and Addiction is a relapse prevention program with a particular focus on attachment. And so we'll go through that. Saturday is mostly about emotional regulation, uh, using meditation to develop those skills. And then a Sunday is uh, the attachment uh, a portion. We think that addiction is an attachment disturbance. And so that if you don't uh, dive in and repair the attachment disturbance, you have, you'll have a, a hard time being able to maintain abstinence or harm reduction. So if that's uh, something that interests you or somebody you know might uh, have those issues uh, come along. Um, in June, we're going to do a retreat. So it's a virtual retreat. Um, take a look at that, it's on the website. We're gonna start a level two class in May. So if you're interested in uh, doing the uh, attachment uh, uh, approach uh, and, and uh, taking a deep, deep dive, uh, there's a waiting list for that class you can sign up for on the website. In, in uh, July and August, we're gonna be do, doing some level one day longs and then starting another level two in September. And then at the end of the year, we'll have our winter retreat. Not sure whether it will be uh, in person or virtual, it'll depend on how the pandemic unfolds. I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll make a donation and help support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. There's links to make a donation either on the website or um, in the email you may have gotten about the class. Uh, thank you for coming and uh, I hope to see you soon. Bye now. Thanks, George. Right.